And earlier today, we almost got a presidential, come at me, bro. The lead starts right now. President Biden standing firm after a slew of Republican governors say they're going to challenge in court his new vaccine mandates. One even saying he'll fight President Biden to the gates of hell over them. A confession in court from a Giuliani goon. What that could that mean for the president's former president's former lawyer? Plus, the 9-11 generation. A little girl who was at a daycare inside the Pentagon when the plane hit is now a grown-up second lieutenant. She'll join us along with her mother, who's a brigadier general who witnessed that explosion. They will share their memories 20 years later. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin today with our health lead and President Biden's message to Republican governors looking to challenge his new mandate on businesses to either test or vaccinate their employees. Biden saying, quote, have at it. The president's new policies will affect about two-thirds of the American workforce, or roughly 100 million Americans, forcing federal employees and federal contractors and healthcare workers, all of them, to get vaccinated. Even private businesses with more than 100 employees will need to make sure their workers get weekly testing or get the shot. For context, 75% of U.S. adults already have at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Biden is talking specifically to the roughly 27% of eligible unvaccinated Americans who are the ones keeping this pandemic going. And even though other vaccines for diseases such as measles or mumps have long been mandated throughout the United States, the fallout to the Biden proposal was swift and predictable. A flurry of Republican governors already promising legal fights, calling Biden's announcement un-American, unlawful, gross government overreach, even though many of the same governors are telling schools and businesses that they cannot impose mask mandates even if they want to. This all comes as a new CNN poll finds Biden's approval for handling the pandemic is still over 50 percent, though it has dropped by 10 percentage points since April. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports for us now, COVID deaths are still averaging more than 1,500 a day in the United States, which is a 9 percent jump from just last week. There are elected officials actively working to undermine the fight against COVID-19. So said the president announcing sweeping vaccine mandates with a testing opt-out for millions of American workers and cue some of those elected officials he's talking about. Texas is already working to halt this paragraph, governor of Texas. We will fight them to the gates of hell, governor of South Carolina. Some experts say the president didn't go far enough. I don't think you should have an opt-out. I don't think you should have an opt-out where people get tested every week. That's a leaky system. Myself, I would make it just vaccinate or not. But he was trying to be moderate. The majority of American workers support vaccine mandates in their workplace. And deep in this Delta-driven surge, the country now averaging over 1 million new cases a week and over 10,000 dead a week. And the unvaccinated are 11 times more likely to die, according to a new CDC study. Tennessee now has the highest infection rate in the country and among the lowest vaccination rates. We have to do something to try and increase our vaccination numbers. uh, And anything that we can do, I think, is beneficial. 90 percent of our patients in the hospital are unvaccinated. Yes. Here in Los Angeles. The item passes. Thank you. Unanimity on the school board. Students 12 and up got to be fully vaccinated against COVID-19 by New Year's. Polio was ravaging Los Angeles as I was growing up. 
And you know what stopped it? Vaccinating every single student. Will it work? Well, up in San Francisco, 90% of eligible students are now vaccinated and zero campus outbreaks since schools opened mid-August. Now, meantime, that game of legal ping-pong continues down in Florida over whether school districts are allowed to mandate masks. The latest turn, an appeals court judge has just ruled in favor of the governor who does not want schools and districts to have that authority. The governor reacted, I will continue to fight for parents' rights. Yeah, not everyone sees it that way. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thank you so much. Let's bring in CNN's chief White House correspondent, Caitlin Collins. And Caitlin, President Biden today seemed pretty confident that his proposed mandates will survive legal challenges from Republicans. Yeah, he did, Jake, because it hasn't even been 24 hours since he unveiled those new proposals yesterday. And, of course, right away you saw several Republican governors saying that they believe that this is overreach, that his new measures that he wants to put in place are unconstitutional. But when the president was asked today about some of these threats from Republican governors to sue over these new measures that the president wants to take to vaccinate more Americans, he seemed to brush it off. Have at it. Look. I am so um, disappointed that uh, particularly some of Republican governors have been so cavalier with the health of these kids, so cavalier with the health of their communities. This is this is we're playing for real here. This isn't a game. The press secretary, Jen Psaki, said they were expecting a lot of the pushback that they got in response to what the president laid out yesterday, Jake. But it's not clear how these lawsuits will move forward if they do actually move forward, because we're still waiting on the Labor Department to actually issue this rule. And what Jen just made clear in our briefing a few moments ago, Jake, is that a lot of the details of what that rule is going to look like are still in flux as they are crafting it, including when it's going to go into effect, who exactly will be paying for the test if it's a company that decides to have employees who are tested? Is it the business? Is it the employee? A lot of the details like that are still something we're waiting to see from the Labor Department, Jake. All right, Kaylin, stay with us. I want to bring in CNN's Gloria Borger and also Dr. William Schaffner. He's a professor at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Schaffner, let's take a step back and acknowledge the world that we're in. About 25, 26 percent of those who are eligible adults in this country are not getting vaccinated. They are swimming in a sea of disinformation from MAGA media, from Republican politicians, from uh, individuals like Robert Kennedy Jr. Uh, and and this, it's, it's, it's understandable how frustrated President Biden seemed yesterday. It's understandable. It's not even the first time we've heard a politician express that. Listen to this. This is uh, Governor uh, Kay Ivey of Alabama uh, when she said it, it's, uh, time to start blaming unvaccinated folks. It was actually the Biden White House uh, that took a different tone. This is a couple months ago. Take a listen. Well, I don't think our role is to place blame. Is that a sign that perhaps the federal government should step in and issue mandates? And if not, are you putting the needs of unvaccinated people ahead of the needs of vaccinated people? I think the question here, one, that's not the role of the federal government. Um, That is the role that institutions, private sector entities uh, and others may take. That certainly is appropriate. So obviously the White House is now singing a different tune. I guess my question for you, Dr. Shafter, because you are in the heart of it, you're in Tennessee. How do you reach these people? Is 
Kay Ivey saying it's time to start blaming them. Uh, Joe Biden, President Biden expressing exasperation. What's the best way to convince them to, to get vaccinated? Yeah, Jake, if we knew that, we would have done it some time ago. But I still think you catch more flies with honey than you do with vinegar. I think local people who are trusted have to reach out to their neighbors and their friends, the business community, the religious community, and of course, local politicians also. We need more of that. And in addition, we're now calling people to serve their country. We're drafting them. We're asking them to step forward and participate in this fight against COVID. It's like we're drafting an army. You all have to serve your country as well as yourselves. We're asking you to roll up your sleeves and get vaccinated. So Gloria Borger, just to remind people again, the Alabama governor, Kay Ivey, said a couple months ago, it's time to start blaming the unvaccinated folks. Uh, But today... She's one of the Republican governors pushing back uh, on what President Biden is proposing. Uh, She tweeted, President Biden has missed the mark. His outrageous overreaching mandates will no doubt be challenged in the courts. She's one of at least 15 Republican governors who are calling Biden's move government overreach. I I guess the other question I have for you is 75 percent of adults already have at least one shot. Uh, I don't doubt even that that his proposed mandates will be will be broadly popular What do you see this beyond the science and health? Mm -hmm. What is the political debate here really about? Well, I think the the political debate is the one we've seen, uh, the same one we've seen in the past. And the Republicans have decided to make this a question of big government, big brother, overreach. And some Republican governors like Kay Ivey once stood up and said, as she said also earlier, folks are supposed to have common sense. You need to get vaccinated. And then she said, uh, you know, blame the folks who are unvaccinated. And I think it's that's the debate we're having now. This is going to continue into the next election. And the Republicans are playing to that base. And Democrats, in a way, are just saying, you know, the president is saying we got to push forward because this is going to affect everything. This is going to affect the health of our uh, citizenry and our economy. And so the Biden folks know what they're facing. Their poll numbers are going down. They get it. And they have to explain why they're doing it and why they believe they're right. And this is a fight that is going to continue in every arena. And, you know, this is just one more of those big government overreach, too many taxes, et cetera, et cetera. It's the same thing, different issue. Caitlin, when asked how these policies would be enforced, uh, the White House COVID response coordinator, Jeff Zients, said this. Take a listen. If a workplace refuses to follow the standard, the OSHA fines can be uh, quite significant. Enforcement actions conclude fines up to $13,600 per violation. I know they're still putting meat on the bones when it comes to how this is going to work, but but who's going to enact that fine? Is it going to be OSHA? Where does the money go? Who's going to enforce it? Do we know? Those are a lot of questions, Jake, that are still unanswered. And also the infrastructure is going to be a big aspect of that because that could potentially be a really big enforcement process of keeping up with who is vaccinated, who needs to be tested, have they been tested this week. OSHA is what would be overseeing that, we believe. It's the Labor Department that's actually crafting this rule, but OSHA is what they're using to actually try to move it forward. And when they're going to unveil it in the coming weeks, we'll know more about those details. But those are big questions for businesses because the White House is hoping that this 
this rule will, in effect, just be so difficult, essentially, to enforce that it will encourage companies to just get everyone vaccinated, that that will be the choice that they're making. Because at a minimum, they're saying that this is the bare minimum of be vaccinated or get tested. And so I think that's the part of it. But I think there are some companies that are going to have questions about this because then it's what do you do with your workforce if you have people who refuse to get vaccinated? Those are going to be big questions for companies that do like this and want to move forward with it. But it depends on what their workforce looks like. All right. Thanks for one and all for joining. Appreciate it. A promising sign in Afghanistan. A second commercial flight has left Kabul. Who was on it? Will more flights follow? Stay with us on that. And thousands of documents have been turned over to the House Select Committee investigating the attack on the Capitol. Should any specific lawmakers be worried? Stay with us. In our world lead now, promising images out of Afghanistan. A second passenger flight departing today from the Kabul airport with the National Security Council confirming that American citizens and American legal permanent residents were on board that flight. On Thursday, the first international passenger flight took off, carrying more than 100 foreign nationals, also including Americans. But still, the U.S. State Department says at least 100 Americans remain in Afghanistan and want to get out. CNN's Kylie Atwood joins me now from the State Department. And Kylie, with at least 100 American citizens still left in Afghanistan, not to mention legal permanent residents, Afghan allies, etc., are more flights expected to leave Kabul in the coming days and weeks? Yeah, the State Department says that they are hopeful that that will continue to happen. They aren't putting a fine point on when these flights are going to happen, how many Americans they expect on the flight, because this is a largely fluid situation, right? We've only seen two flights leave this Kabul airport for Doha in recent days. But in this week, during this week, in the last six days or so, there have been 35 Americans who have left Afghanistan. There were 19 Americans on the flight uh, that left today. But significantly, Jake, we've just learned from the White House press secretary that all of the incoming flights to the United States with Afghans on them have been paused. And they have been paused because there were four cases of Afghans with measles found here in the United States. Now, Jen Psaki said that the pause was recommended by the CDC. We don't know when these flights are going to resume, but that is significant uh, because there are still thousands of Afghans at U.S. bases in Germany and Qatar waiting to come to this country. We had on one of the digital Dunkirk uh, individuals yesterday talking about just how incredibly challenging this is logistically. How is the State Department coordinating these flights, getting Americans on board? Well, right now, the State Department is really focused on this one way uh, out of the country. This is the Qatar Airways flight that we have seen. But they're also coordinating. They're starting to formalize that coordination with these outside private groups who have been involved and tried to do their best uh, to be involved. At times, that has been a tense relationship between the State Department and these outside groups, with the outside groups saying state isn't doing enough to work with them, State Department saying privately that they are complicating the efforts uh, that they are trying to carry out here. The bottom line is that they are getting to a place now where the State Department is going to be working more formally with those groups. That came to fruition after the White House signed off on a plan to do so earlier this week. But we should note it also came after the chairman of the Joint Chief Staff, Mark Milley, met with some of these outside groups uh, who were saying that they wanted to be more formally involved. Now the State Department is going to be doing that. We'll bring more details to you as we get them. Yes, it seems like good news. Kylie Atwood at the State Department, thanks so much. Joining us this Sunday for a CNN special report, America's Longest War, What Went Wrong in Afghanistan? I'm going to pose some questions to most of America's commanding generals who oversaw the 20-year war. That's at Sunday 
at 9 p.m. Eastern. Coming up, a Giuliani associate whose name you may remember from Trump's first impeachment. He pleads guilty in a campaign scheme. What might that mean for Giuliani and former President Trump? That's next. In our politics lead, a Washington favorite called a document dump. The select committee investigating the January 6th insurrection in the House of Representatives just confirmed that the committee received thousands and thousands of pages of documents, and the committee may want more, lots more. Let's go to Capitol Hill and CNN's Ryan Nobles. Uh, Ryan, the committee just issued a statement about what was handed over. Tell us what they're saying. Yeah, well, they're not telling us what's in those documents, Jake, but you're right. They say they've received thousands of documents from different government agencies and social media companies related to their investigation into the January 6th insurrection. And even though the committee says that they are happy with the cooperation that they're getting from these government agencies and from the social media companies, they say they want more. In a statement on Friday to CNN, the committee said, quote, the majority of the social media companies are cooperating with the probe. However, we need to receive much more information and the select committee will use whatever tools are at our disposal to get the records we are seeking and what they're saying without actually coming out and saying it is that they're prepared to use their subpoena power if they have to to get this information from both the agencies and from the social media companies jake we should also point out that in this statement they talked about their request from the national archives this would be the information that they're seeking to obtain from the trump White House. They point out that the archives are working with them, but there are some procedural hoops they have to jump through. This likely means that a fight over executive privilege is about to happen between the committee and both the Biden and Trump White Houses. And Ryan, I mean, they don't have an unlimited staff. This is a lot of material to sift through. How much longer will this make the investigation last? Well, Jake, the resolution that created this committee specifically did not give it a deadline to complete its work. And there's a reason for that. It's because they have so much information to sift through. Uh, this is just the beginning of this process. They, the committee has said in the past that they're going to go through all these documents, and that will lead to witness testimony, subpoenas to bring people in front of the committee. It could take some time before they draw a conclusion. And the big question is, Jake, can they get that work wrapped up before the 2022 midterms? That remains an open question. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Also in our politics lead today, a guilty plea today. From one of the shady characters who had been working with Rudy Giuliani before the 2020 presidential election as Giuliani was trying to dig up dirt on Joe Biden and his son Hunter. Giuliani denies any wrongdoing, but today Igor Fruman confessed to having broken campaign finance laws. CNN's Kara Scannell's in New York where Fruman went to court today. Um, tell us a, a, more about this particular case. Refresh our memories. Sure, Jake. Well, you know, you think Igor Fruman and Lev Parnas, they were synonymous with Giuliani and those efforts in Ukraine. But what Fruman pleaded guilty to today were campaign finance violations. In court earlier today, Fruman entered a guilty plea to one count of soliciting donations from a foreign national. And what prosecutors allege he and others did was raise a million dollars from a Russian and then use that money, most of that money, to donate to local campaigns where they hoped to get a cannabis business off the ground. Now, Fruman said in court today that he deeply regretted his actions. He faces as much as five years in prison when he is sentenced in January. But a key thing here, Jake, is that Fruman is not cooperating with the government. 
So he will not be helping them in their investigation into Giuliani's activities in Ukraine, where Freeman had a front row seat. Now, prosecutors, some of these same very prosecutors are still investigating Giuliani and those activities in Ukraine, scrutinizing whether he violated foreign lobbying laws when he was involved in those efforts. Now, Giuliani has vigorously denied any wrongdoing. He said that he was working for one and only one person, the former president, Donald Trump. Now, the investigation into Giuliani is still ongoing. The FBI had raided his home and office in April. They collected 18 electronic devices, and a review of those materials is still ongoing. Jake. All right, Kara Scanella, New York. Thank you so much. Coming up next, a military family's call to serve how the heroes who saved children at the Pentagon daycare on 9-11 inspired their lives 20 years later today. In our national lead, September 11th, 2001. Tomorrow marks 20 years since that single day changed so many lives forever. That day started the war on terror when then-President George W. Bush vowed to defeat every terrorist group of global reach. That day changed air travel forever after 19 hijackers took over cockpits and sent commercial planes on suicide missions. And that day changed, well, so many families, including my next two guests. Second Lieutenant Hannah Bourne was only three years old on 9-11. She and her infant sister were at daycare inside, inside the Pentagon when American Airlines Flight 77 crashed into the building. Her mother, Dana Bourne, is a retired Air Force Brigadier General. She was working just across the Potomac River at Bowling Air Force Base in D.C. Uh, I want to talk about service and I want to talk about that day. But first, General, I have to start. I'm a dad. I can't even imagine your feeling from across the river and you see this explosion at the Pentagon. Your two little girls are there. Yeah, Jake, it's uh, still very raw emotions come through and a lot of uh, mixed emotions. And yet at the same time, you know, we trained for that. I was a lieutenant colonel, so pretty much 18 years of service. And in that time frame, I thought about three things. Uh, First was we had people in the Pentagon and I had a first sergeant that jumped and went there. So he was our eyes and ears, called my husband and said, honey, the Pentagon's been hit. Uh, He said, I'm on my way. So I could trust that they were going to be hopefully rescued, although we didn't know. And then finally, I actually um, had to do the mission, which we had been training for, never thought we'd have to. And I had great young men and women who stepped up and surpassed expectations. But yes, it was uh, mind racing and lots of emotions and mixed emotions on that day and for many. thankfully, both of your daughters were, were okay. Uh, Lieutenant, do you remember anything from that day? You were three. I was young, so most of my memories are a bit fragmented, where I have bits and pieces that are really vivid and others that are maybe a bit blurry in my time lapse. But I think the common theme across most of my memories is just overwhelming confusion as I struggled to process what was happening. And then on top of that, just sensory overload with the sights and sounds and smells of the day. Um, But I think regardless of how young you were then or how many years have passed, when you have a sensory experience like that. It's a memory that never leaves you. Yeah, it must have been. I can't even imagine. Confusing for anybody, much less a, a three-year-old. So um, a few days after your husband, who's also a general, we should point out, uh, went on his frantic uh, search, found your daughters. Um, he went back to the daycare to thank uh, workers and to, and to ask them how they were able to move so many of these young kids in the confusion. Um, some of them were in cribs. Uh, to this remote area. It turns out there were, there were a lot of unsung heroes that day. 
at the Pentagon. There were, and the way he retells the story, and this was about three days after he went to the daycare and they were all meeting. The care providers were being told the Pentagon daycare was going to close, and so they were kind of getting their pink slips. And he went into the director and said, how in the world did you get 100-plus infants and toddlers to a remote site so beautifully secure with like guards protecting them a half mile away. And she said, as soon as the plane hit, there were people, she said a Marine was the first she saw. My husband's a retired Marine, so he likes that part of the story. Uh, but several people who came and just helped. They said, how can we help? And they uh, lifted in and, and took them all to a circling of the wagons. And they were in a peaceful spot in the middle of chaos when he found them. And, Lieutenant, um, I mean, tragically, you had classmates who lost parents that day. Yes, sir. Uh, I think that's one of the things that has always stuck with my sister and I about this story is as much as our story is unique in our proximity to the attacks, it's also not unique because it's not our story, it's a nation's story. And recognizing how blessed our family was that day and also in the 20 years since is something that we keep in mind now in our service and just how we can honor and remember the lives lost and so many families who are changed. So six weeks after 9-11, uh, your family got to celebrate your belated, uh, understandably, fourth birthday. Uh, instead of a Dora the Explorer theme, uh, it was changed to, you insisted, on an American flag-themed party. Uh, you became known as the Little Patriot. Is that what led to you to where you are now as a second lieutenant? Yes, sir. In a sense, I think so. Um, I think it was less about the flag as a physical object and more that I understood it to be a sense of community. It seemed like in the weeks after 9-11, everywhere you went, there was an American flag on display. And I saw that as a visual indication of people communicating their support for one another and how we were going to come together and grow and heal together. And so that extrinsic focus and supporting others is ultimately what inspired my sister and I now to want to serve in a position that will uh, better others and, and be part of something bigger than ourselves. Yeah, your, your other daughter is, is uh, serving. She's a midshipman at the Naval Academy right now in her third year. It's incredible. Um, and you don't have to call me sir. I have not earned anything. You can just call me Jake. Um, General, in the days and weeks uh, since 9-11, we saw, we saw a lot of uh, the best of this country. Uh, not just uh, patriotism, but people coming together, people helping each other, um, people being there uh, for each other, celebrating first responders, uh, a sense of unity. Is that gone? Do you think it feels very far removed from where we are today? It's one of the um, things I hope that 9-11 does is takes us back to that time where there is that sense of unity, where we are coming together in that common purpose. And I would like to believe that purveyor of hope that we can get back to that. And that's the way that we can honor those that paid the ultimate price that day and 20 years since. And where did this tradition of service come in your family? You're a general, your husband's a general, you have a midshipman, you have a lieutenant. I mean, do you have family going back centuries served? Where did it come from? On, on, the, on her father's side, on the paternal side, we do go back to the Civil War. And, uh, on the also, right side, I hope. <laughs> and, uh, okay. and, and, on, and his father, uh, matter of fact, the Patri- we lost both patriarchs this uh, COVID season, but he was a World War II uh, Navy pilot, one of the last single wingers, uh, flew airships. And then my father, who we also lost this year, was a Coast Guard radioman 
uh, just after World War II. So there is some legacy of service in our family. Did you lose them both to COVID? Uh, my, my father-in-law, we did lose to COVID in the early wave in a nursing home. And my father was to complications of Alzheimer's. Oh, I'm so sorry. What a horrible year. Um, so you're in the Air Force. Your younger sister's at the Naval Academy. Um, big question. Who is the family going to root for when the Navy plays the Air Force tomorrow in Annapolis? I mean, are you... I think you have a bit of bias here today. We'll obviously say Air Force, but my sister and my dad will be on the Navy side tomorrow. So it just, but are you able to watch a game like that in a, in a healthy environment? We'll or? talk afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you both so much uh, for sharing your story. I'm so glad that you're okay, that your sister's okay, and thanks uh, to the whole family uh, for your service. Thank you, Jake. Thank you all. Tune in to CNN tomorrow morning. Special coverage. Wolf Blitzer will be in Washington. I'll be in New York City. We'll remember 9-11 20 years later. That starts at 8 a.m. And then tomorrow night, Robert De Niro, De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, Her, Brad Paisley, Maroon 5, and Common will join me for a special tribute for the families of 9-11. Shine a light. That's at 8 p.m. Eastern, Saturday evening. Coming up, China seeing lots of red these days as their communist leader takes controversial steps to change everyday life, including going after some celebrities. Stay with us. In our world lead right now, contrasting views about a 90-minute phone call between President Biden and Chinese leader Xi Jinping. This is the second time the two have spoken since President Biden entered the White House, although they met extensively when Biden was vice president. This afternoon, the White House described the call between the two leaders as candid in tone, but not lecturing or condescending, and that human rights and the origins of the coronavirus were among the topics discussed. This sounds quite a bit different from the version we're hearing from Beijing. They say President Xi told Biden that U.S. policy towards China has, quote, caused serious difficulties in relations and runs counter to the best interests of both countries and to the world. The tough talk fits right in with steps President Xi has taken recently to assert Chinese nationalism at home and abroad. And as CNN's David Culver reports for us now, this harkens back to past crackdowns on Western influence. China's ruling Communist Party, having just celebrated its 100th birthday, is implementing a series of drastic policies, upending everything from multi-billion dollar businesses to pop culture. It's back to socialism. And the party, I think, wants to remain ahead of the curve. Socialism with Chinese characteristics, as it's called here. The party's returning to its self-acclaimed motto of serving the people, led by an increasingly powerful Xi Jinping. He really wants a disciplined regime, a disciplined people, all dedicated to the party uh, in many ways and in making China strong. And it means weakening some of the country's biggest tycoons. In recent months, Beijing has targeted some of China's most successful companies, imposing harsh regulations and fines on ride-hailing company Didi and tech giants Alibaba and Tencent. It's coincided with restrictions on materialism and the flaunting of luxurious living. President Xi's gone a step further, calling for a redistribution of wealth to close a widening income gap. It means that uh, private businesses are going to be much more under the control of the government and the the party. It means that the rich are going to be also much more uh, under check. The crackdown has also extended to Chinese celebrities, 
those accused of tax evasion or simply being unpatriotic, and sometimes even without explanations, not only canceled, but also erased from Chinese social media and online streaming platforms. You can't get too high, you can't get too famous, and you can't get too wealthy. Some are calling it a new cultural revolution, harking back to the 60s and 70s when then-communist leader Mao Zedong led a movement to purify the party, as he put it. But many say an obvious effort to reassert his control in a power struggle. It led to brutal crackdowns on free thought, mass imprisonments, and death. Though in today's China, there is no question who's in charge. A comment by Xi has massive consequences nowadays because the bureaucrats, the party officials today, are eager to please him, are eager to follow uh, through on his instructions nowadays. And that's actually felt also in the capital markets as well. And it's spread into China's already heavily patrolled cyberspace, from celebrity fan pages to university LGBTQ groups. Profiles and past posts deleted. These policies to purify the internet and preserve party control, seeming to target any person, company or group with suspected foreign influence, most especially from the United States. China is also challenging the U.S. for full control over strategic supplies, from electronic chips to solar panels to vaccines. It wants access to these key items unimpeded by Western nations and eventually to become self-sufficient. Meantime, some are tapping into China's rising nationalism, winning favor by promoting patriotism, morality, and, more than anything else, the Communist Party ideology. Starting with children as young as six years old, with the recent introduction of a new mandatory academic subject, Xi Jinping thought. The Chinese president already eliminated term limits in 2018, opening the door for him to rule for life. As for the companies that are feeling growing squeeze from Beijing, they're suddenly paying it forward in a very public way, pledging to donate billions of dollars to further Xi's social causes. Whether voluntary or compelled, it seems they've gotten the party's message. In China, there is only one boss who really counts. Jake, the crackdowns we're seeing playing into an obvious restructuring of both social and home life, a purification of the party with the goal for both its ideology and leadership to sustain a century after its founding right here in Shanghai. Jake. All right, David Culver in Shanghai. Thank you so much. Republican governors vowing to battle President Biden's new vaccine mandate. Legal experts weigh in on whether they have a shot in court. Next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.